Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lift it up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Gospel Record of Luke. The Gospel Record of Luke in chapter number 20. The Gospel Record of Luke in chapter number 20. Jesus Christ has now finished up His earthly ministry. And it is on His last week, which is often called the Passion Week, of His life here on this earth going to the cross. He has already entered into Jerusalem in a triumphant entry, entry on that Sunday. And now we find ourselves in a continuation of the day that we had started on Tuesday, March 28th of AD 30. Jesus Christ has already uh, preached to the Pharisees. Remember the Pharisees had come to him and said, what authority do these things? And when he brought up John the Baptist, under what authority did he do those things? They refused to answer him, and so he refused to answer them. Then he turned around and gave them the parable of the wicked husbandmen, which was still speaking about this idea of authority. Now, because of that, and they understood that Jesus was speaking against them. They didn't quite understand what, but they knew it was against them. This was the moment where they switched completely. Beforehand, they were just seeking to discredit him. They were just seeking just to shut him up. They were seeking to try to make him where he had less followers. But this was the decision. This was the time where now they are purposely seeking to kill him and are making plans to kill him. With this in mind, with this backdrop that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes, the Sanhedrin, the high priests, the high leaders, the elders, they're all against Christ. Christ, we now see them at a full court press in the gospel record of Luke chapter 20. And let's look together starting at verse number 20. The gospel record of Luke chapter 20. And in verse number 20 we see this. And they watched him and sent forth spies which should feign themselves just men that they might take a hold of his words that they may, might deliver him unto the power and authority of the governor. And they asked him, saying, Master, we know that thou sayest and teachest rightly, neither acceptest thou the person of any, but teachest the way of God truly. Is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar or no? But he perceived their craftiness and said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Show me a penny whose image and superscription hath it. They answered and said, Caesar's. He said unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's, and unto God the things which be God's. And they could not take hold of his words before the people. And they marveled at his answer and held their peace. Then came to him certain of the Sadducees, which deny that there is any resurrection. And they asked him, saying, Master, 
Moses wrote unto us, If any man's brother die, having a wife, and he die without children, that his brother should take up his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. There were therefore seven brethren, and the first took a wife and died without children, and the second took her wife, and he died childless, and the third took her, and in like manner the seven also, and they left no children and died. Last of all the woman died. Therefore in the resurrection, whose wife of them is she? For the seven had her to wife. And Jesus answering and said unto them, The children of this world marry and are given in marriage. But they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Neither can they die any more. For they are equal unto the angels." And are the children of God, being children of the resurrection. Now the dead are raised, even Moses showed at the bush. When he called the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not a God of the dead, but of the living, for all live unto him. Then certain of the scribes answering said, Master, thou hast well said. After that they dost not Ask him any question at all. And he asked them, How say they that Christ is David's son? And David himself saith in the book of Psalms, The Lord saith unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, Till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore called him Lord. How is he then his son? Then the audience of all the people, he said unto his disciples, Beware of the scribes which desire to walk in long robes, and love greetings in the markets, and the highest seats of the synagogues, and in the chief room at the feast, which devour widows' houses, and for a show make long prayers. The same receive greater damnation. And if you have been making things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that we find in the gospel record of Luke in chapter number 20. The gospel record of Luke chapter 20 and notice with me in verse number 20. The gospel record of Luke chapter 20 and verse 20. Notice this, that they might take a hold of his words. So with this we see that phrase, might take hold of his words. And we're going to see as they laid traps with the purpose of trying to lay a hold of him based off of his words. They're trying to trap him with questions and trying to get him in trouble that they may lay a hold of him on his words. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come back to you now, we're asking that you would open up the Bible in a special way, that you would give us wisdom and that you would give us understanding, and that we would understand that when people don't want to do things your way, that they get into trouble, they get into destruction, they harm others. Help us to do things your way and depend upon you. Fill me with your spirit even now. Guard my heart, guard my mind. I give you my thoughts, my ambitions, my goals. Fill me with your spirit and you just direct this message the way that you see fit and draw us close to you and help us to respond properly because of you and your precious word. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. What a powerful phrase that you see here that they might 
take a hold of his words. They are now on a spree for the purpose of trying to trap Jesus. Not just to get him to shut up now, but they are now on purpose trying to get him killed and trying to find some way where they could discount him and get permission. At the moment, the people are all on Jesus' side. It is the religious rulers who are against Christ. And they've got to find some way to either sway the crowd or sway the Roman government to be against Christ. Right now, the Roman government is more neutral towards Christ. He's not causing any problems. He hasn't come up on their radar for the most part. It's the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. They're the ones that have an issue. Now, in the gospel records, Jesus Christ warns the disciples of three types of leaven. Now, leaven is a yeast. It's an additive that you would place inside of bread to make it rise. And Jesus warns quite often about the leaven. He warns about the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of the Sadducees, and the leaven of the Herodians. Each one of those leavens are going to be exampled here. The leaven of the Pharisees is the leaven of hypocrisy. It carries is the idea that people pretend it to be something they're not. They pretended to be super spiritual. They depended, depended, uh, pretended to be close to God and they were far away. The, the leaven of the Sadducees are those that deny the miracles of the Bible. They deny the supernatural. A good way to remember that is because they deny miracles in the resurrection. That's why they're so sad, you see. The Sadducees denied the supernatural. We're going to see that. And then you see the leaven of the Herodians. The leaven of the Herodians, the Herodians were a political party that carried the idea that they could get across spiritual results through political means. That if we get the right people in office, if we make the people in office happy, if we allow them, they could grant us the freedoms we need spiritually. You're going to see all three of these examples of leaven that are going to be levied towards Christ and he is going to deal with all three of them in this story. Notice if you don't mind the questions of the Pharisees. The questions of the Pharisees. Now notice with me again in verse 20. And they, this is the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders, and they watched him and sent forth spies which should feign or pretend themselves to be just men or saved men, disciples, that they may take a hold of his words so they might deliver him unto the power and the authority of the governor. So notice this, they switch tactics. Their job is to find some way to show that Jesus Christ is trying to commit, commit treason or sedition. Sedition is the idea of the planning to take over or overthrow a government. Now they have spies that are taking notes, recording, to see if they could trap Jesus into saying something where they could present him before the Roman government and say, look, he's against you. So here's the question, verse 21. And they asked him, saying, Master, we know that thou sayest and teach rightly. No, they don't. This is a lie straight up. Oh, master, we know that you teach right. If they believe that Jesus taught right, they would have followed him. They're buttering him up. 
They're trying to grease it. They're trying to make it so that way his tongue flows. Oh no, we're not against you. We're for you. We know that you teach rightly. Notice as they go on some more. Neither acceptest thou the person of any. Meaning, listen, we know that you don't care whether it's the chief priest or whether it's a peasant, whether it's a leper or whether it's the Caesar himself. We know that you're not going to change your answer based off of your audience. By the way, that is also true. Jesus is going to tell what's true. So they're buttering him up. They're trying to get him so that way he feels free to give an honest answer. And so they're trying to grease the wheels. But teachest thou the way of God truly? So here's our question. Is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar or no. Now this was supposed to be a trap question. And the idea was is if they, if Jesus said no it's not lawful for us to give to Caesar, then what they could do is they could use this to stir up the people to cause a riot. And when the riot is caused, it was Jesus. He caused the riot. But if Jesus said nope, <coughs> It's not lawful to give to Caesar. Then um, they could also turn over and say, listen. Jesus Christ said that we shouldn't obey the laws. Listen, he doesn't want to obey Rome. So put him arrested. He doesn't want to obey your laws. He's a teacher. He's got a big following. He's going to cause you problems. You better get rid of him now. But if Jesus said, yes, it's, it's lawful, then what happened? Remember, the Jewish people very much had despised the Roman government because Rome never conquered them. They were sold out. And to the Jewish people, this was a very big source of bitterness. They were hoping for someone to overthrow Rome. So if Jesus said, yes, we should honor Caesar, what would happen is that most of the crowd would deter on Jesus right then and there. And so the Pharisees, you can imagine that they came up with this question and they talked with each other. Oh, that is good. And they're going, there's no way he can get out of it. If he says yes, we've got him. If he says no, we got him. Oh, good question. Good question. There's no way he can answer this and get away unscathed. And so they, that's why they're buttering him up. They're so happy with themselves. They're, they just, in their mind, they already know that Jesus can't give a right answer. So they're with a smile, a twinkle in their eye, just a little smirk. Jesus, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or no? So it's a yes or no question. They asked him yes or no. That's all we want. We don't need an explanation. Yes or no. So Jesus answers them. But he perceived the crafty, their craftiness. Meaning he knew exactly what they were doing. He knew their hearts in the first place. He was, knew their conversation when they were whispering between each other and what they were going to do and then giving each other a pat in the back. We've got him now. He perceived their craftiness. He knew exactly what they were trying to get accomplished. So he doesn't play their game. Why tempt ye me? He calls them out and says, listen, I know what you're trying to do. Why are you trying to get me in trouble? How about this answer? Show me a penny. So someone gets up, gets a coin. He says, all right, whose face is this? Caesar. All right, then this. Render therefore unto Caesar the things which be of Caesar's. 
and, the thi- and unto God the things which be of God's. By the way, that's a good answer. Do you know that you could be a good citizen of the country that you're in and be a good citizen of heaven? Amen. You don't have to be one or the other. In order to be a Christian, you can't be a good American. No. Jesus says, listen, there are times that you're supposed to honor the government. That means pay your taxes. Obey their laws. That we have to live in this world. But at the same time, we could still honor God. They're not mutually exclusive. It's not one of the other. And when he answered in that way, verse 26, notice this. They could not take hold of his words. In verse 20, they were trying to take hold of his words. At this, they lost their grip. They couldn't hold on to anything anymore. They were hoping this yes or no. Either way, he answers, we've got him. And if you could imagine in your mind, they were looking to take a hold. As soon as the words come out, they're grabbing it. We've got him. But when the words came out, they couldn't grab onto that. That was nothing they could hold on to. It just went away. That was, it just ruined everything for them. You could almost, they had a smirk on their face. And when Jesus answered, they went, oh. They're upset. They didn't like his answer at all. I mean, they couldn't say anything to the answer, but there goes our tricking Jesus. Well, that didn't work. And it says, they marveled at his answer and they held their peace. <laughs> I mean, what are you going to say after that? You try to trick him and he called you out on it. And now you can't trick him. I mean, what else are you going to say? Oh, wow. How did he get out of that? We weren't expecting him to get out of that. We see the question of the Pharisees. And then after that, we have the question of the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees, they were the religious rivals to the Pharisees. The Sadducees rejected the authority of the Pharisees' oral law. The Sadducees said, we only believe five books in the Bible. That's it. We reject all the Old Testament. We reject their oral law. We stick on the five books and we deny miracles. We don't need miracles. We just need what it says. We reject the supernatural. They reject angels. They reject all of that. But they ask a question that goes beyond their belief, beyond their doctrines, because they think they could trip Jesus up, saying, well, he believes this. Let's ask him a question based off of what he believes. Notice they ask the question in verse number 27. Then came to him certain of the Sadducees, which deny that there is any resurrection. And they asked him, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us that if any man brother die having a wife, and he die without children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now let me explain what's going on. According to the Mosaic law, because inheritance was so important and that God had designed it so that way a family could continue to pass it on from person to person to person so that way the the nation of Israel would never diminish or never disappear that according to the law of Moses said that if a husband and wife get married and the husband die before the wife gets a child that what would happen is that the next brother could actually marry her and the first child that they have would be, um, would be inheritance of the brother who died. Does that make sense? And then the second brother, if he had another child, that would be his firstborn inheritance. Well, 
the story goes that this lady, now hypothetical story, but this lady marries a guy, he dies without getting a child. So the second one goes up to bat, he marries her, dies without having a child. So the third one comes up to bat, he dies without giving a child. The fourth one comes up to bat, he dies. The poor lady. Fifth one comes, sixth one comes, seventh one comes, and then he dies without a child. All right, so they've already made a complicated story. They're trying to nitpick details, trying to say, by the way, they didn't even believe a resurrection. So they ask a question about the resurrection. You believe in a resurrection, so let's cover this. So they go through this story all the way up to verse 32, verse 33. Therefore, in the resurrection, now they don't believe in a resurrection. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of them is she? For she had seven wives. So here's the question. When you die and go into the millennial kingdom, remember they don't believe in a resurrection, but let's say they die, they go into the millennial kingdom, and now she's there and everyone else has brand new bodies. Whose wife is she? Is she wife of husband number one, number two, number three, number seven? Whose wife is she? That's our question. Who is she married to? I mean, she can't be married all seven. God doesn't like the polygamy thing, so... Which one is she married to? Tell us. We want to know the answer. They're having the idea that, you know, Jesus would not know enough about the Bible. And because they're hoping that maybe he would say, well, there is no resurrection. You guys are right. You know, this is silly that, you know. But notice what Jesus says, verse 34. And Jesus answering, by the way, the gospel record of Luke is a not, lot nicer than the other gospels, what Jesus says to these Sadducees in this story. And the gospel record of Luke, Luke uh, tones it down just a bit. And Jesus answering said unto them, the children of this world marry and are given in marriage. So he says, listen, in this world at this time, people marry. However, verse number 35, but they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world, meaning not this world. So in verse 34, this world, there's verse number 35, that world and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor given in marriage. Neither can they die anymore for they are equal with the angels and being children of God and being children of the resurrection. So Jesus looks and says what he tells him in another gospel that you're pretty much ignorant for not knowing your scriptures. He says, when the people go to the millennial kingdom and they get their brand new resurrected bodies, they will not marry anymore because they're no longer going to reproduce children. There's no need for a marriage. Marriage is for the purpose of reproducing a race. They're, because they're not going to um, reproduce and they have bodies that will never die, they're not going to be married. And so here's a couple. They've been married for 70 years in this world. Will they be married in the next no, because things are different. Will they know each other? Yes. Can they share memories? Absolutely. But are they going to be married? No, because there's going to be no re reproduction from those with redeemed bodies. And so Jesus says, you're ignorant of the Bible. By the way, 
That means the Old Testament preaches about the resurrection and the millennial kingdom. And the Old Testament teaches that we have a brand new redeemed body that's going to work differently. Those are things the Old Testament teaches us without the New Testament commentary. That's pretty amazing things too. They didn't know their Old Testament scriptures and the Bible taught of this and taught these things. Verse 37, now that the dead are raised, even Moses showed at the bush when he called the Lord the God of Abraham. Now notice this. This is going to be present tense. The God present tense of Abraham. The God present tense of Isaac. The God present tense of Jacob. So what this is referring to is in Genesis chapter 3 when Moses goes to the burning bush and God says take off those shoes for the ground you're standing is holy ground and he begins to talk with him and God, uh, Moses said who is your name? What should I tell him? And God says I am that I am. And God says I am present tense the God of Abraham. I am present tense, the God of Isaac. I am present tense, the God of Jacob. Now, if you know your Bible, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been in the ground. Their bodies have been in the ground for a hundred and something years now, a long time. So when God is saying, I am present tense, the God of Abraham, you know what that meant? Abraham was present tense, alive, somewhere at that time when Moses was speaking to God. God says, I am present tense currently, right now, the God of Isaac. But Isaac's dead. Yeah, but he's alive with me. He's alive somewhere. Isn't that great encouragement that there's life after death? That absent from the body is present from the Lord? D.L. Moody once said that one day you'll hear the newspapers say that D.L. Moody is dead. Don't you believe them? Because I'll be more alive than I've ever been at that moment. The Sadducees, because they didn't believe in the resurrection, they're missing something powerful and something hopeful. That when we're dead, we're alive with Christ and we're going to be with Him forever. If you've accepted Jesus, your Savior. And He is present tense, our God when we're dead. Because we're still alive somewhere. Our bodies may be deceased. But what makes us who is alive somewhere. That's great. But they were missing out on this. Jesus says, well, let me teach you something. Verse 38. For he is not a God of the dead, but of the living. For all live unto him. That's some good stuff. He says, God is alive and he's a God of the living, not the dead. He's not the God of the, the tombstones, of the cemeteries, of the graveyards. Those are where the bodies may be kept. But the, what makes them them is alive with him. Present tense, in with the Lord. Well, remember the whole purpose in verse 20 that they may take hold of his words. So the Sadducees take their turn at bat. It starts out with the Pharisees. They task a question. They swing and they miss and they strike out. Here comes the Pharisees. All right, all right. We got them. We got them. And they're waiting to take a hold of his words. And they ask a big theological question. We're going to ask a question of the Bible. We're going to show him he's not as smart as he is. And he answers them and they go, oh. Notice their response. Verse number 38, then certain of the scribes answering said, Master, 
That was well said. And after that, they durst not ask him any question at all. Again, they started off. They're going to lay a hold of him. They're going to ask a question that he's going to answer wrong. And we're going to show that he doesn't know. And that he's not worth following. And Jesus answers him well again. Oh, Anything else? No. Nope. Nope. I'm not asking any questions. Nope. Shh. Nope. I mean, they look pretty silly now. So Jesus said, all right, you don't have any questions? Let me explain some things. The next thing I want to show you, Christ-centered ministry. A Christ-centered ministry. Remember, a Christ-centered ministry is, has its attention on Christ. Looking at Christ. So Jesus says, you don't have a question. I got a question for you. Verse number 41. And he said unto them, how say they that Christ is David's son? And David himself said in the book of Psalms, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand. So Jesus says, I got a question for you. You asked all, me, all these questions to me. Let me ask you a question. Christ, the Messiah, remember the word Christ it means Messiah. The Messiah is supposed to be David's descendant. So you had David, then you had Solomon, then you had Rehoboam, and so on and so forth and so forth, all the way up to the Messiah. And there you go, yep, yep, yep. Then if David is the progenitor, David is the ancestor, David is the great, 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 great grandfather, that means he's full of honor, he's full of glory. Remember, back in those days, family was a big deal, and the head of the family was the head of the family. How is it that David, who was great King David, this great king, this one that we look up to, how is it that David, in verse 42, David himself saith in the book of Psalms, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand. This is Psalm 110 verse 1. Notice this. In this passage, David is the psalmist. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, David recognized that one of his descendants would be the Messiah. In this passage, Jehovah God, which is Lord, notice this in capital L-O-R-D. When you see that, especially in the Old Testament, this is referring to the personal name of God, Jehovah, Lord. So he says, the Lord, Jehovah, said unto my Lord. Now notice this Lord here is in lower cases. But this is speaking about David's descendant. So the Lord, God, said to my, who's that my there? David. To David's Lord. This Lord here carries the idea of master. In this passage, David says, my descendant is my master. And so Jesus said, listen, the Messiah is supposed to be of David's descendant, David's lineage. How was it that David said that this descendant is going to be my master? He says, riddle me this, answer me this. He reads the rest of Psalm 110. Uh, 110 verse 1. Till I make thine enemies a footstool. David therefore called him Lord. How is he then his son? And the people went. What? David said his descendant is going to be his master. Now we know correctly. Is Jesus Christ David's master? Absolutely. Because Jesus Christ is the Messiah. 
and Jesus Christ is God robed in flesh. But was Jesus bloodline, uh, blood related to David? Was he a descendant? Yes, he was. God knew what he was doing. And so the, peop- the, disciple, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees go, nope, we're not answering that. We, what Jesus is doing is recognizing, hey, I'm the Messiah. I'm God. And David recognized me as Lord. How come you don't recognize me as Lord? How come you don't recognize my authority? Remember the conversation was just on authority. He says, you guys want to answer me questions? How about this? David called me, his descendant, Lord, Master. Whose authority are you obeying? David called me Lord. You said David's great and you obey David. Well, if David called me Lord, how come you don't? That was the idea here. And they go, remember when we talk about a Christ-centered ministry, it's all about pointing people to the Lord. It's all about pointing to him. Jesus is the answer. You know, these, these Pharisees and the Sadducees are asking all of these questions because they're trying to get people's attention off the Lord. But a Christ-centered ministry points people to the Lord. Which then brings us to one last thing that Jesus brings up. And we see a man-centered ministry. So if a Christ-centered ministry is pointing to Christ, let's see the results of a man-centered ministry. Notice with me verse 45. Then in the audience all the people are then in the audience of all the people he said to his disciples. So he doesn't go privately. He's still in the presence. There's the Pharisees, there's the Sadducees, there's the rest of the crowd. He turns to his disciples and says, "Let me teach you something now. You just watched all these goofballs." Let me teach you what a man-centered ministry is like. Verse 46. Beware of the scribes who are like right behind him. Beware of these guys back here. You just heard him ask stupid questions. Beware of them. Why? Which desire to walk in long robes. The Pharisees loved their long clothing. Their clothing identified them. Their clothing was very important, by the way. Clothing of the Old Testament and in the New Testament was very important. What you wore and how you wore it. The Pharisees loved long robes. And they loved the big flowing robes that when they walked by, people go, oh, that's a preacher. That's a Pharisee. Oh, that's someone. And the Pharisees loved it. They ate it up. They loved it when they walked by and people go, oh, They loved that reaction. They loved it when people recognized them how they were. By the way, that's kind of one of the reasons why we as Baptistic people don't wear robes when we come to preachers, plenty of them. We're not trying to show off. But they loved those long robes. There was something that made them look holy and special, religious. And Jesus said, beware of the scribes which desire to walk in long robes and love greetings in the market. Oh, they would love it when people recognize, that's a Pharisee. That's a man of God. Wow, look at how close to God he walks. I want to be just like him. They loved it. They ate it up. Notice this as he warned them some more. And highest seats in the synagogues. Now in a synagogue, the building was designed in kind of like a circle with stadium seating. So instead of being on a platform risen up, the speaker would be on the very bottom. And that way he could kind of lecture and teach everyone that was around him. 
The Pharisees loved to have the seats right there. So when people looked down at the speaker, they would see them too. They like to be right there, right where everyone can notice them. They could be, oh, look at how close I am. Look at how religious I am. Look at even the seating that I'm on. You know, we have people do that. There are some times that we have people on the platform, maybe a song leader, maybe someone make announcements, maybe a deacon, maybe something up there. But we have to be careful because there's people who love to sit on the seat. They don't like to do the work, but they love everyone. Look at how religious I am. Look at how smart I We have to be careful of that because... That goes with a lot of people to recognize how great I am. Please, quick, someone touch me, touch me. Oh, oh. they love that type of stuff. And so they would sit down and everyone would look down from the stadium seating and they would see the, the Pharisee right there beside the speaker because of how great religious they are. Notice Jesus goes on. And the highest seats in the synagogues and the chief rooms at the feast. Now we had a whole message where we talked about that before. That they would fight to get the best seating. So because of where they sat was actually an order of importance. They would have seat one, seat two, seat three, seat uh, four, seat five, seat six. They would have numbers. And the numbers of the seat where they were at was to show their importance. And they would fist fight and push and shove and control and bribe to get the number one seat or number two seat. Look at I want to get right next to the guest of honor because I'm that important. You know how silly it is to fight over what seat you're sitting in? And they would do it because they wanted people to recognize how great I am. They love to sit, see how important they were. Notice as it goes on, verse 47, which devour widows' houses. Now this is important. A scribe was someone who could read and write. And many people during that day could not read and write. So not only would they write and copy the scripture, but they would also be hired out to do legal documents like a will. They would help out with civic duties. So let's say that there's a little widow, widow woman and she's getting her affairs in order. And because she can't read or write, she hires a scribe to be able to read uh, to write out her will to spell things out. And what would happen is the scribe would say, okay, so you're getting your affairs in order. Are you Jewish? Good, I thought you were. Are you a good Jewish? Yeah. Hey, you really want to earn your way to heaven? You know what? You should consider giving all of your possessions or a good chunk of it to the temple. And if you give it to the temple, you'll show God how grateful you are and how devoted you are. And when you do that, you know, you give it all and God will show how uh, you, you'll prove to him. In fact, let's not even wait till you die. Why don't you give it to him now? And what would happen is that the widows, because they're listening to this religious person, give up all of their stuff. And the scribes would get a commission of everything that was given to the temple. And so they're making a profit out of this. And this is why it says they devour widows' houses. Here's a widow woman who just hired someone to put her affairs in order. And she got talked in putting all of her inheritance, everything she has, to the temple. That's a no good slime ball right there. And yet she's thinking he's the most religious person and she's trying to listen to his advice and she's being taken advantage of. That's what a man-centered ministry is. It's not helping out that widow woman. It's making me better. Helping me out. That's what a man-centered ministry, what can I do to get ahead? What can I do to be seen? What can I do to be witnessed to? What can I do to be served? What can I do to make my position higher? How can it advantage me? 
and you're not looking out for others and you're not pointing them to Christ. Which devour widows' houses and for a show make long prayers. I meant these were prayer warriors that could drone on and on and on until everyone's asleep. And talk about nothing but how great they are. Oh God, thank you that I'm not one of these Pharisees or publicans. And I'm not like one of these sinners. And they can draw on people like, wow, that is a great religious prayer. Amazing. Man-centered prayer. Man-centered ministry. It goes on. It says, the same shall receive greater damnation. The result of a man-centered ministry is they get what only man can do. The result of a Christ-centered ministry is what Christ can do. That's what we should be gunning for and aiming for. So as we see these people trying to ask these questions and deal with things, Jesus warns them, beware of the scribes. He tells us before, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of the Sadducees, and the leaven of the Herodians. The leaven of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. Man-centered ministry. Beware of the leaven of the Sadducees, which deny miracles. By the way, by default, deny God and his power. You know what the Sadducees are stuck with? With what only man could do because they don't believe that God could do anything. And then the leaven of the Herodians, which is trying to do spiritual things through worldly means. It doesn't matter who we get elected president, it will not bring revival. God brings revival. It doesn't matter what laws we pass. Laws do not legislate morality. They do not change hearts. God changes hearts. And whereas we want to be good civic citizens, our hope is not in the government. Our hope has to be in God. See, when it comes down to it, it's who are we trusting in, God or man? And if you trust in God, you will get what God and God alone could do. Or if you trust in man, you get what man and man can alone could do. Now we've given these religious examples. What about in your life? In your life, you can work hard and get things accomplished. You can come up with your own plans and get what you can get accomplished. You could take care of things yourself and put things and do things right and get things accomplished. But there's an idea that I'm depending on God and I'm trusting in Him. And I don't want to do what I can get accomplished. I don't want to have to force my way to make things work. I want what God and God alone can do. And my dependence is on Him, not my intellect. My dependence is on Him, not how hard I could work. My, my dependence is on Him and not how well I could plan and organize and scheme and plot. My dependence is on Him and not how well I could save or organize money. My dependence is on Him and not my way of speaking to people and my way of twisting people's arms. My dependence is on Him and not about me. You know, we need reminded of it that whereas we try to do things correctly within a church, what about your own life? In your own life, tomorrow's a Thursday. Tomorrow, are you going to get things done that needs to be get done in your own strength? That's our normal default. I wake up and, oh, I'm tired. Well, I'm going to get some coffee 
and I'm not preaching against coffee, but I'm saying we go through the motions, gets coffee, finally wake up. All right, I'm depending on the coffee. All right, now I'm awake. Okay. All right, now I get to work. All right, I'm going to work in my own strength and I'll get some things accomplished. Hopefully I'll get some things accomplished. All right, well, I'll get home and I'll do whatever chores I got to do and I'm doing it my own strength. And we could get things accomplished doing our own stuff. But we could come to the place where we say, Lord, I'm tired this morning. I need you to wake me up. By the way, (laughs) your own theological view, God can use coffee to wake you up, but are you dependent on the coffee or him? You understand there's a change of mind and change of thing. Lord, wake me up. Lord, let me be efficient at work. Let me do not what I can do, but Lord, you empower me. Help me to be efficient at work. I could read the Bible in my own strength and get some things out of it. Lord, I'm asking you to help me to read the Bible with your power and get out of it what you can get out of it. You know, this covers us. Do we have a Christ-centered ministry, a Christ-centered life, or is it a man-centered ministry, a man-centered life? Lord, what can I do to make myself better? What can I do to put myself ahead? What can I do to meet my needs? What can I do to get through this day? What can I do to get a good night's sleep? What can I do? And by the way, there are legitimate things that have to be taken care of. But so often we try to do it in our own power and our own strength. And we get accomplished what we can do. One day we need to get sick and tired of it. And say, Lord, I'm no longer satisfied with getting accomplished what I can get done. I want to see what happens when you do it. When I put my dependence upon you. When you use my life to glorify your name. Even in my work day, Lord, you do it. I'm tired of getting things accomplished in my own strength. I now want to see what you and you alone can do tomorrow. And Friday. And Saturday. And next week the week after that, I learned to live a life that's dependent upon God and his power and his miracles and his strength and his might and watch our life be different when it's not all about us. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.